First one, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain, and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast without, with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones, to execute judgment on all, and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Well, let's pray for God's help before we look through this together. Heavenly Father, we've 
uh, read your word and heard by your Holy Spirit hard things. And your word says that we need all of your word. And so we pray that as we listen to Jude together, the first four verses this evening, you would help us to understand it, understand what you've said, why you've said it, and why we need it. In Jesus' name, amen. So having read through Jude, how are you feeling about spending three weeks in it? Hmm. Are you excited and can't wait to get stuck into it, or are you feeling something else? I mean, some of the letter is fantastic, isn't it? We often close our services with that epic ending, to God be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever, amen. That is stirring stuff. But then there's the long, hard bit in the middle. It's a little bit hard to read. Some of it is hard to understand, and the tone is very heavy. There's a lot of talk about sin or ungodliness is the word that Jude uses more often than others, and a lot of judgment. Angels being chained in darkness, cities being destroyed by fire. It is heavy stuff. And it's the sort of letter which makes a church ask, do we really want to read this? And it's the sort of letter that makes a preacher ask, do I want to preach this? There is something very appealing about making every sermon a sort of warm bath for the soul. And of course, some sermons need to be that. We, we looked at uh, Psalm 23, didn't we, just a few weeks ago here in the evening, and it was a little bit like slipping into a warm bath. It was a, a wonderful reminder of God's uh, loving care for his sheep. Do we want to hear this? Do I want to preach it? There are signs, hints, that Jude apparently wasn't all that eager to write it. You notice that in verse 3? Verse 3, have a look down with me, would you? Verse 3, beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. It's almost as though Jude wanted to write a, a kind of a warm bath letter. You know, you can imagine him uh, typing out an email to whoever this letter's to. It's not, there's no stamped address, is there? Um, and the first draft is just encouragement from beginning to end. At scaling the heights and scouring the depths of God's amazing love and grace in Christ. And, you know, he, he saves the draft and he leaves it for a while to think it over. And then something happens. You know, he hears some very disturbing news. He hears a report back, perhaps, from uh, a particular church. And then he comes back to his email and with a heavy heart, he, he deletes the draft. And he starts again. I found it necessary. So this letter may not be what we want to read, but it is what we need to read. And every church needs to read it. It's why it's here in the Bible. Now, what Jude describes happening in this church here in Jude is what could so easily happen in this church here in Richmond. We need this letter. And what is it? It's a call to contend. It's Jude's rallying cry to that church and every church, beloved, contend for the faith. That's our first heading, contend for the faith. And there's the cry in verse 3. Have a look with me. Would you contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints? Contend, be contentious. Now, how do you feel about that? We don't want to be contentious people, do we? 
You might be able to think of a contentious person. They're awkward, they're angular, they're difficult, they're always looking for a fight. They're always trying to drag you into a debate about whatever it is they're passionate about at the time. And sometimes Christians can be like that. Always fighting for their particular position on whatever it is. This isn't a call to fight our corner on everything we believe about everything. How do we decide when to contend for something and when not to? Here's a way of uh, categorizing issues in church life that I find helpful, you might find helpful too. But people have talked in the past about uh, primary, secondary, and tertiary, you know, third order issues, right? A tertiary, third order issues, they're, they're issues that are really just a matter of preference. And fighting over those things is immature and divisive. So, you know, what, what color do we paint the walls of the church? Uh, whether or not we have a drum kit in our church music group. They're just questions of preference in church life. There's no verse in the Bible that'll tell you the color of the walls or whether to have a drum kit. They're, they're preference. We can have an opinion. We can discuss it. We can discuss what shade of white we should, have, we should make this building. But fighting over it would, would be silly. This isn't something to contend over. That's at the sort of third order level. And then you go up to secondary issues. That these aren't matters of preference anymore. They're, they're questions of biblical conviction. But they're the sort of things about which genuine Christians can disagree. They can read their Bible, the same Bible, and come to a different conclusion. They, these things do matter in church life, these secondary issues. They, and churches usually have to come to a position on these things in order to function as a church. But it's fine to disagree on them. For example, should we baptize the babies of Christian families or only baptize believing adults? Churches disagree. We only baptize believing adults here, but we're not going to denounce a, a, a believing people here. We're not going to denounce a gospel church down the road that has a different practice. So, uh, we believe that the Bible teaches that eldership in church life is a role reserved for suitably qualified males, but another Bible-believing church might disagree. We're not going to go to battle over it. We could discuss it with open Bibles, but we're not going to contend in the same way. And by the way, you can find uh, some of those secondary positions, if you like, uh, for our church in our doctrinal distinctives document on our website. And talking about some of those lower order issues, someone has put it like this, that we should keep our walls low and shake hands over them often. We should keep our walls low and shake hands over them often. So what is it that we're content to contend for then? It's the gospel. And the gospel isn't tertiary or secondary, it's primary. And that's a large part of what Jude means here by the faith. There in verse 3, the saving message of Jesus Christ once for all delivered to the saints. Interesting, isn't it, when you think about it? Clearly, by the time Jude was writing, uh, at some point in the first century, there was a widely accepted and understood definition of the faith. He, he expected his readers to know what he meant by the faith, to know the gospel and to see error when they heard it. Now, we practice church membership here. We'll, I'll say a little bit more about that later on. And to become a member in our church, you have to go through a membership interview. And one of the first questions we ask in that interview is this, what is the gospel? What is it? Now, let me give you a few seconds to answer that question in your head. You don't have to turn to the person next to you. It's not a test, but just think. If you're a Christian, what is the gospel? 
what sorts of things would you want to say in answer to that question? Well, there's lots we could say, and uh, it can be hard to organize our thoughts. So here's a, a way of thinking about what the gospel is. It's a message about God, a message about us, and about Jesus, and about us. God, us, Jesus, us. God. God is holy, and he's loving. Us. We're glorious, made in God's image. And we're sinful and deserving of God's judgment in hell. God, us, Jesus. Jesus came to be Savior and Lord. To save us from our sin on the cross. And he rose to be our Lord and our King. And then us again. To be forgiven, to receive eternal life. We need to repent, that is turn around away from our sin. And believe. God holy and loving, us, glorious and sinful, Jesus, Savior and Lord, us, repent and believe. You might find it helpful to learn that this week. This is the gospel. This is the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Notice here verse 3, once for all. In other words, we have all of the gospel now, and we don't need anything else. The gospel contains everything a person needs to believe in order to be saved. And notice that it's been delivered it's been entrusted, verse 3, to the saints. The saints there just means Christians. In other words, the gospel, the faith, isn't something that Christians or the church have made up. And it isn't something that human beings have the right to change. It's a message that Jesus trained into his apostles during his life and after his resurrection. He made sure that they were absolutely clear on what the gospel was. And then they made sure only to preach what they'd heard directly from him. He entrusted it to them. And therefore they knew they weren't to change it, but simply to preach it as they received it. Now when something is entrusted to you, you look after it, don't you? So, I don't know, someone lends you their car. If you're driving a car belonging to someone else, provided you haven't stolen it, but you've been given it, like lent it, how do you drive it? Do you throw it around every corner? Do you drive it like a go-kart, smashing it into everything? Do you drive it less carefully because it doesn't belong to you? No, of course you don't. You drive it more carefully, maybe, than you would even your own car. It's been entrusted to you. Or someone asks you to look after their dog when they're on holiday. Do you not bother to feed it because it doesn't belong to you? Well, no. You've been entrusted with it. It's been delivered to you. You feed it, you care for it, so that you can give it back to your friends in the best possible shape. Now, look, the saving message of Jesus Christ is so much more valuable than a car or a dog. It's the only message by which sinful people can be saved. Only by believing the gospel do we receive eternal life. Which means, when the gospel comes under threat from any angle, when someone or something threatens to distort it, the church's calling is to contend for the faith. We're going to see in a minute that the church to which Jude wrote was facing a particular crisis in this regard, but every church has a duty to contend for the faith, to get the gospel right. And if we're serious about getting the gospel right and maintaining the truth of the gospel in our church life, it will often mean doing and saying awkward things. So look, there you are, for example, in your 
fellowship group. We have uh, small groups meeting every two weeks on Thursday evenings. Uh, we call them fellowship groups, and they study the Bible together. And someone in your group says something that's just outright wrong. It's a core issue, all right? It's not a secondary thing. It's not something on which Christians disagree. It's a primary thing. It's absolutely central to the faith. It's just wrong. Now, what do you do? You just wave it through? You just pretend uh, it didn't happen? Now, look, I'm not suggesting that you condemn them as a heretic, all right? Please hear me carefully. It's good to assume that it's an innocent mistake. But you do need to say something, don't you? Or someone needs to say something, don't they? We find some gentle way of correcting the error and speaking the truth. Now, a friend of yours maybe has started reading a, a Christian book, and you just know that this book really isn't helpful. You know that the author has a track record of twisting the Bible and really distorting the gospel. What do you do? The polite thing you might think to do is just to ignore it, but is that the kind and the loving thing to do? We need to hear Jude's call here. The faith really matters. It's been given us by God himself, entrusted to us. Contend for the faith. And notice here in Jude, it's contending for the faith against creeping contamination. Verse 4, this is our second heading, against creeping contamination. We, we quickly learn that the problem that Jude is trying to address here is more than just an innocent error in a fellowship group study. We can all get things wrong in that context, can't we? But this church is different. This church has been infiltrated. Verse 4, certain people have crept in unnoticed, unnoticed by the rest. And what do we learn about them? Verse 4, they're designated for condemnation. That is, they're not truly saved. They're not born again. They're not genuine Christians, even though they might be trying to give that impression to others. They're destined for God's judgment. Ungodly people, verse 4, who pervert grace and deny authority. They've infiltrated the church. Now, have you ever had a virus on your computer? Have you had your computer attacked by a virus? It's the most infuriating thing. It never, the virus never announces its arrival onto your machine. There's never a sort of beep at the beginning to say, you know, I'm here, unless you've got very good uh, virus checking software. It creeps in while you're online through opening some email attachment that hasn't been scanned or whatever it is, and the virus just sits there lurking on your machine in some file that you can't see or access. It hides and it multiplies, and it multiplies, and it grows and it grows, and slowly but surely it begins to contaminate your whole machine until it's got total control and the laptop's completely unusable and you need to take it to some uh, professional to get it fixed. Well, the church here has a virus, and the virus is people creeping in and contaminating everything with ungodliness. See that verse 4, ungodly people. These are not people struggling with sin. These are people boasting about sin. Uh, look over at verse 16. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters. Now, let's think this through together. Judas called the church to contend for the faith. And we've talked together about how contending for the truth of the gospel, our teaching, our doctrine, is vital. 
So having heard the call to contend for the faith, we may be expecting the problem here to be a problem of doctrine. We're waiting for Jude to introduce the false teachers. And it might well be that these people were false teachers, but notice the focus in verse 4 isn't so much on their teaching, but on their living. Whatever they say about the gospel, their lives deny it. We have at Duke Street a statement of faith. You can find it on the website alongside the doctrinal distinctives document. That statement of faith um, is, uh, is protected, so it can't be changed uh, without a, a major majority of the church voting to change it. It expresses what we call the faith. Now, that's good and important. It's vital we have something like that. But having a good statement of faith isn't much good, is it, if the church practically denies it by the way it lives? Uh, we have a, a tradition, a reputation for, uh, for liking Bible ministry. We try to celebrate and practice Bible ministry here, but that Bible ministry isn't much good, is it, if we deny the truth by the way that we live. If ungodliness is allowed to run rampant through a church like ours without a clear call to repentance and without consequences for a refusal to repent, then that statement of faith or that covenant of membership or whatever it is isn't worth very much at all. And we shouldn't be surprised, if that is the case, if eventually our false living leads to false teaching. We're used to thinking about it the other way around, probably. We're used to the idea of false teaching producing false living, aren't we? If we, if we preach and teach that God, say, is fine with uh, sex outside of marriage, which the Bible clearly forbids, we would expect that to lead to sexual immorality in practice. But doesn't it work the other way around as well? If sexual immorality, which is an example given here in Jude, is allowed to run unchecked through a church, we'll soon stop talking about the need for sexual purity, we'll stop teaching what the Bible says about it, and eventually we'll probably end up revising our statement of faith to suit the practice of the church, our behavior. False living leads to false teaching. And sadly, that's what we've seen over the past few decades in uh, some areas of the church in the UK. And this isn't a secondary issue, is it? I heard a, a church minister recently in an interview call sexual morality a secondary issue. He compared uh, sexual immorality to Brexit. He says, Christians disagree. He said, that's fine. No. Ungodliness, sin, is a primary issue. It's a gospel issue because unrepentant sin leads to judgment. Did you notice how contemporary the ungodliness here sounds? Verse 4, he spells it out. What does this ungodliness look like? Verse 4, perverting the grace of our God into sensuality and denying our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Perverting the grace of our God into sensuality. They treat God's grace as a license for sin. God will forgive me whatever I do, so I'll live how I want. Why can't I have sex with my girlfriend or boyfriend? It's all about grace, not rules. It's fine. Don't be so legalistic. They twist God's grace. They reshape his grace to suit their lifestyle. Now, this is what is sometimes called cheap grace. Uh, 
theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer in the 1930s to find cheap grace in this way. He wrote, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession of sin. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Or to put it another way in the language that Jude uses here, it's living with Jesus as Savior, but not Jesus as Lord. You see that in verse 4? They deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Cheap grace wants Jesus as the Savior who forgives me, but not as the Lord who rules and changes me. You notice how Jude introduces himself in verse 1? A servant of Jesus Christ. It's thought that this Jude was the half-brother of the Lord Jesus. They shared a mother, Mary, but not a father. Now, why doesn't Jude start with that? Wouldn't you lead with that if you were writing an introduction to a letter, trying to get people's attention? You'd say, I'm, I'm related to Jesus by blood, and everybody would sit up and take notice. But he doesn't say it, does he? Because to Jude, Jesus wasn't first his brother. He was the Lord, and Jude his servant. That's the posture of every Christian, isn't it? His servant, Jesus as Lord. Can we see then that contending for the faith means caring deeply about godliness? It isn't just a matter of getting our believing right. It's about getting our living right as well. Living with Jesus as Savior and as Master and Lord. And so Jude probes us as a church. Are we passionate about godliness? Are we passionate about godly living? About not only believing the gospel, vital as that is, but about living it out in our day-to-day -day life. When we conduct membership interviews here, we don't just ask about the person's belief, but about their behavior as well. We know that the sign that they really believe the gospel is that they want to be godly. They won't be perfect. We know we're not perfect. But there will be a pattern of repentance and a desire for godliness. What does that describe you at the moment? Is God's grace an excuse to sin? Or is it the power for godliness in your life? Is Jesus your savior only, or is he your master and your Lord as well? So there's Jude's rallying cry, contend for the faith against creeping contamination. And he, he says, do so with confidence. And this is the third and final thing we'll notice. There in verse two, we're to do, verse one and two, we're to do this with confidence. It's uh, scary stuff, this, isn't it? You, you think of Jude's first readers reading the letter. Was it a shock to them to hear that uh, the ungodly condemned had infiltrated their church, masquerading as Christians? Were they, were they excited at the battle ahead, or were they terrified? I'm sure Jude knew how they might feel at the prospect of the battle ahead, and so in verse 1, he reminds them of just how secure they are as they contend for the faith. Verse 1, they are the called, the chosen, chosen by God himself, chosen to belong to his church. They are the beloved, verse 1. Notice it doesn't say beloved by God, which we might expect, does it? It says beloved in God. 
as though this is even more intimate than being loved by God, wonderful as that is. It's as though he's, he's gathered them up into his arms, gathered them into his love. He holds them close to his heart. He deeply loves them. How encouraging this is in the trenches of church life. You, you think of the moment in the film when uh, the allied soldier is crouching in the trench with a gun in his hand and he's about to be sent over the top and into battle. And uh, he reaches into his pocket and he pulls out a picture of his sweetheart back home. Her face is smiling at him, a reminder that though the enemy hates him and that the, but the battle is fierce and frightening, there is someone who has chosen him and who loves him deeply. That's the Christian rejected by the world, but chosen and loved by God. And notice verse 1, kept. Kept. Not notice here, by Jesus Christ, but kept for Jesus Christ. Well, the former is true, of course. The Christian is kept by Jesus Christ. The good shepherd keeps his sheep. But they're also being kept for him. Kept safe for his return, like a, a bride being kept for her husband, or a, a trophy being kept for the champion. The church is being kept as Jesus' treasured possession. All the way through the battle, kept for that wonderful meeting with him at the end. Judah is saying to us, can you see the amazing security you have as you contend for the faith? You could not be more secure. God has chosen you in the past, dearly loves you in the present, and he's keeping you for the future and for eternal life in Christ. So, how are we feeling about studying Jude? Well, it may not be the letter we want, but it is the letter we need. The faith we teach, the gospel we believe, the gospel we live out as we seek to live godly lives is worth contending for with every fiber of our being as a church. It is the only message that can save a lost world, a message of Jesus the Savior and Jesus the Lord. And as we contend for the faith here, may we grow in our submission to him. May we see ourselves as his servants. And may his grace change and transform us into the godly people he's calling us to be. Let's pray together for his help. Father, we thank you for the wonderful security that we know in your love for us in the Lord Jesus. We know that by nature, without the Lord Jesus, we're ungodly people. And we find in the gospel, in the good news of Jesus, the only solution to our sin, the only true path to forgiveness. We thank you for the joy of sins forgiven and heaven promised in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we pray that as we see the preciousness of the gospel entrusted to us, we pray that you would help us to contend for it, guard us as a church from drifting away from it. And we pray that we would contend not only for the truth of our doctrine, but live out and contend for the truth of the life that it produces in us, 
please foster in us a growing passion for godliness in our lives. And may we, as we live, as we seek to live godly lives in your strength, bring great glory to Jesus, our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.